Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Dr. Andy or Dr. Andrew Walsh is a globally recognized leader and expert in the field of elite human performance. For over 20 years, the Australian native has been focused on the goal of demystifying talent by researching and training individuals and teams across a vast network of world-class programs in sports, culture, military, and business settings. Formerly, Dr. Walsh was the director of high performance for Red Bull, where he worked with hundreds of international athletes and cultural opinion leaders, supervised a team of industry-leading scientists, engineers, physicians, and technologists to develop and implement elite performance models more recently, he has founded, co-founded the Liminal Collective, which we'll get into a little bit more in the show about what that actually is. So, welcome, Andy. <laughs> hey, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, it's going to be a fun conversation. We're going to update that bio now, and I've hit 50. It's 30 years, so, God, I'm getting on. Oh, jeez. Well, man. <laughs> You better tell the internet to update it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm actually probably pretend I'm 40, so that's why it stays 20 <laughs> years. So. Oh, mate. So, um, so I guess, look, I'll, I'll just open up with the, the first question. I mean, I, I, I did a, a lot of research, and we all did a lot of research on you, and there was so much material, but a lot of the uh, – I know a lot of our viewers are in corporate, and a lot of them are leaders within organizations, and – they're very interested in team dynamics and team development. And one of the things that you talked about with team, Tom Bilyeu was selecting for character. Okay. So mm. selecting for character in, in teams. And, and can you just kind of elaborate a little bit more about what you mean about that? Yeah. Um, I think, sort of the essence of sort of the high performance communities we've been sort of lucky enough to share from is that once you get to that sort of real top level, you're, you're looking for people that are sort of lifelong learners that are open-minded, that have that beginner's mindset. And, and part of that comes with the characters that you, the character of the individual that you're looking to recruit, because at that point, you're no longer interested in training them technically or tactically. They know what they need to know. There's a hundred kids showing up for that job with, you know, the right degree and the right experience, et cetera, et cetera. You want to know someone who's ready to take things on and, and has the character and, and, and you brought up earlier, the humility to sort of accept that they don't know everything and then sort of dig in and just become kind of that lifelong learner. And when you get to down to the nitty gritty on, on the characteristics or on the, on the metrics that are used at the sort of most elite teams that we ever get to in the Engage with character is the number one uh, uh, recruiting uh, metric because everything else is sort of given, mm. and they want people who are, who know how to fit in, who are willing to follow as much as they'll lead. They're, they're looking for people who share the values of the group, and most of those groups at that level are always values based on 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 that sort of frameworks that are stand for things that are bigger than yourself. So that's kind of where they come from. Andy, when, when I was told that you were coming on, I was very excited about this because I heard you've been doing a lot of stuff, everything from Felix Baumgartner when he did the Stratos project. So that means a lot to me because I remember watching that live. I was like, is this guy going to wake up when he was falling? <laughs> um, but 
what you did a recent podcast with the I think the Virgin podcast. I think that's what I heard you on there. I think it was a live keynote of yours. And you must I didn't watch it, but I heard it and I think you showed a video of snakes to show people about being in a fear setting, if that rings a bell. Yep, yep. One of our training programs that we run, uh, part of a performing under pressure training camp that was set up uh, originally at the Red Bull when I was running the Red Bull program, and so we set that up as a as a framework to sort of explore sort of how you respond when the challenge sort of is beyond your capability. So yeah, that was that was the, the infamous snake pit. <laughs> yeah, and that piqued my interest because. I like to put myself through something scary every day. Um, it's just something I've learned from putting myself through several, several endurance challenges. There must have been about 60 in the last three years. So I can be a better, stronger person in general, but to be a better athlete. What is something that you could recommend the everyday person to put themselves through something scary every day, like through that regimen, so that fear, so we can fear less? I know we can't be fearless, but we can fear less and it increases that threshold. What is something that quite practical? It might be a couple of things that come to mind. We might yeah. not have a snake pit ready for us, but what no. is uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think there's a few constructs there to get around. First and foremost, the, so people are aware of these, these, these evolutions that always make the highlight reel, um, these training evolutions are always the fun stuff, so they don't see all the preparation and the sort of back end the, so there's a briefing and debriefing, and that's sort of just the supporting framework we put around people. So no matter who they are, whatever, if they're trying to take something on that will force them into a learning space, i.e. the threat that you're taking or you're, the challenge you're taking on is beyond your capabilities. The idea is to not see it as a threat, but see it as that challenge that you speak about. So you sort of got to take all that broader context into play. Then the activity that you may choose, it really just depends on the individual. Um, we know in that particular case that most people, especially in North America, uh, not so much in Australia, the snakes are not quite as common. And the, the idea is that that was just something to put in front of them that would push them past something they were expecting, especially when they were blindfolded when they were going through it. So what's the question asked back to the individual is what's that thing that's just beyond your reach or beyond your capabilities or you feel it's a challenge for you? And then there's those three tools that you're sort of trying to practice. It's not to become less fear or fearless, as you said. It's to become used to the idea of being scared <laughs> or being out of, out, of, out of your comfort zone. And the more you're in that space without going too far so that you completely withdraw, the more you get to practice what it feels like as you enter it, the more you understand how you personally react when you're in that space. And then you start to learn, which is part of the briefing, the tools to help you get back uh, down to sort of sort of more of a management, a management of that space. So really, it could be for some people, for, for a business group, which I know there's a lot of, you know, if I do a program with them, the say a C-suite, a high, high, high level executive group, just don't give them an agenda and that starts to freak them out. Yeah. You know, mm. and it's a coaching point because they're so used to having every minute of their day planned. We turn up and we run a little bit late and we, we kind of bumble around with a presentation and they feel like, why? There's, you can see the room viscerally, the hatred welling and the, you know, the, 
that you know they're like who are these people wasting my time and then you pause and go why why what happened what's the cause and they all were ramping they were getting over emotional over angry in most cases and they just had sort of got to that place without managing themselves in the situation and not using some of the tools and techniques we we can teach you to actually put that whole situation in context and reflect back down. So it can be very simple for people in that particular case you referenced. You know, these are best in the world and in, in, in sort of business and sport. We mix that group together, some number ones in the world. So it's got to be something very profound and aggressive to get them over the edge. But I wouldn't recommend that unless, yeah, people are really looking for something. Yeah, I think next time I go into uh, one of our board meetings, I'll throw a bunch of snakes in the middle of the room and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, the snakes, you know, that's, that's for that group. But for, for, for business executives, especially people whose time is managed at that high, it's at Fortune 100, you, you come in disorganized, no agenda, they don't know what's coming. It's, they are not comfortable. And very quickly, it's the same effect as throwing them in a pit of snakes. In fact, probably worse. It's funny, funny you mention that because, I mean, my firm, we're a, a $50 million privately owned firm here in Australia and the CEO and I know each other, each other pretty well, but we have a meeting later on today where he sent me an agenda and it kind of irritated me because I'm quite organized, but I also like to have, be a bit casual and I want to be a bit casual in the conversation when we meet, but he sends me this agenda and he's really created some formality that it's kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I'm trying to talk about things that are a bit more personal in, in the meeting, but he has to follow that process. And uh, it is interesting. He's evolved that way through corporate and uh, it's no, no fault to his own. It's probably a good way to operate, but you are a hundred percent right. People start to get really stressed out when they don't know where the conversation is going to go in corporate. <laughs> so. Um, and that's the point. The point is not just to do it for the sake of offending the individuals. It's to do it so that, they get to experience what it's like to get quite beyond their comfort zone. Yeah. And when they're in that space, you then teach them how to bring it back so that they can recognize the next time they get there, maybe they can employ these tools. So it's just one example, but you know, it's usually it, the, the one general we have is we try to put you in a challenging situation that you're not used to. It's uncommon or obtuse to you because if you're very good, It'd be very hard to stress out your CEO by saying, hey, get up in front of your board meeting and do a big presentation because that's something they do all the time. But you take someone who hates public speaking and put them in front of that situation and they're going to ramp right over the top. So it's, you just come at people. So for business people, we come at them with athletic or military maybe examples. And for athletics, we come from business or other examples. So it's always a mixing of those challenges. Yeah. There's something I want to... Uh dovetail in that touches on this and it was also in the conversation that you had with Tom Bill you and and this is a, a very uh, a, a big topic for me and it, the topic was suffering and and Tom said he kind of asked you if you felt that suffering was a necessary to uh, kind of enable one of your athletes or high-performing business people or their relationship to suffering did it kind of mean that if they had a, a capacity for suffering that they would then be able to endure difficult situations better than those that have not encountered a certain level of suffering? And I think your answer was yes, but you also felt that you could simulate 
that kind of suffering to some degree. Now, it's my belief, and, and I may be wrong that, and personally, definitely for me, that my competitive advantage in my space and, and generally where I operate isn't my talent, but my ability to, and my relationship with suffering and my um, kind of acceptance of sitting in that space for quite some time. And I just want to understand from you, Andy, how important do you think or how um, does suffering in one's life enable someone to create a competitive advantage in whatever space they choose or whatever field they, they choose to operate in? How do you, how do you see that? It's a, it's a great conversation and a great question. I think the suffering or let's say hardship, I think there's a lot of research. In fact, I think Harvard published something about success at their university. Was pre- one of the early predictors was that you'd had some earlier childhood challenge or drama or trauma. Uh, one of the, some of the elite military units for, in selections a couple of times, they've researched the cadre of, of people going through and found that, you know, kids who've come from tougher backgrounds or divorced parents were the ones that made it. Um, I think that that idea is sort of also based in the notion that, you know, the sort of the, the rites of passage of sort of ancient traditions and wisdoms that sort of resolve around putting someone in a very tough spot as a way of them learning about who they are and what they're about. I think so. I think there's a lot of validity to that conversation. To your point, though, I think it can be more proactive if you put people in a lot of these challenging situations, which is part of the way we work, but you support them with training prior, training during and training after or debriefing prior, during and after so that they are not only they go through it, but they go through it knowing that they, that they, that they do have an out and that they have a, have a network of, of information or, or, or support that will make sure that they're not going to get completely destroyed in the whole process. And I think that's the balance I was trying to get to with Tom, that I think it's really powerful because sometimes, whether it's a just going for that long, long run or uh, ultra-endurance event or it's that, you know, putting yourself in a tough spot with respect to taking on challenges in business, whatever it may be, it forces you to really focus on what you stand for and get down to that real core value set. Uh, and, and once you have that, it allows you then to flex from there. But you can also touch on it without actually putting everyone through the baton march, you know. So it's, it's, I think there's a balance there. I think sometimes it swings too hard to the right. And, you know, but other times I think people need to get a little bit of a shove to figure out, you know, just to reset. So it's, and that's the art of what a lot of the work we do is how do you figure out how to challenge people in an uncommon way but support them so that they grow from the experience and mm-hmm. don't sort of retract from it. That's awesome, um, Andy. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm curious, right, like I'm, I'm listening to you speak and I'm just thinking, like you, you've worked with some phenomenal athletes that have, you know, achieved so much in their, in their own field. From being so close to them and I guess the way they think, what, what if any, or, or what do you think the X factor is that separates them from, say, the people um, that, that, that might not get it. And I'll, and I'll relate this, like I'm an avid golfer, right? And you look at, there's there's guys in my club that play off plus six 
and they're like, they'll shoot the lights out. They'll have eight, eight or nine under. And then I see the difference between them and, say, someone playing on the tour. And I'm curious, like, what, what do you think the difference is? Because I don't think the ability is, is too much different. Like, they're not that much better in terms of skill. I think a lot of it has to do with mindset. And I'm, I'm curious, obviously, you've, you've worked so closely with, with that, that type of person. I mean, what do you think it is? Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff, and we looked at this actually, measured a lot of things over the years to sort of try and sort of figure out what that, that, that thing is, that X factor <laughs> yeah. is. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, in some, you know, in very pragmatic terms in some events, if you think athletically or even business, there's a, there are some genetic pieces that, you know, if, if you want to run a two-hour marathon, you're just going to have to pick your parents. There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that sort of gets you in the game. I think once you start to think about what separates them, we, we always found that a real passion, like a true, true love of what they do. Um, and if you pick golf, watch Tiger on the weekend, you know. He, he won again when everyone, for the most part, had put him away as sort of had, had, having had his time in the, in the sun. But he'd had four back surgeries. I don't know if you know the story. He couldn't walk, couldn't sleep, obviously, as a golfer. So only if you really love golf are you going to get back up and try and play that game again. So there's, the love sort of drives a passion, which drives a purpose. And I think I, I remember years ago working with a world-class surfer, um, and, and he was just, no matter how bad it was, every day he would be out there, every day. Rain, hail, shine. And we all loved it, but he really, really loved it. And it's going to be hard to beat people like that. Uh, something we did see in the cross of a broad spectrum of talent in, in arts and sport, and even the government, was that they often, you see, that they also see it for a bigger purpose. There's something beyond themselves that's driving it. It may be in the military. It may be for your team or your country. It may be from some spiritual or religious reasons, or it may be your family or putting food on the table. Um, there seems often to be a bigger purpose also driving them. Um, it may early days, and maybe I want to be the best in the world, but once they sort of mature and get to that level of excellence, you start to see this idea that they want to you know, be, be part of a service and support and many times want to give back. And, and sort of those sorts of things have been able to really you know, sort of love what you do to allow you to push through all those challenges and then work on the skills and the psychology of performance and being able to pick yourself up when things are broken and, and you know, come back from you know, defeat, all those things are sort of a subset of it. And then you get to this idea of service and wanting to do things for something beyond yourself and a bigger purpose. And I think that those are the two big ones that sort of stuck out to us over the years. And then everything else sort of fell after that, like the you know, psychology, uh, training the right way, some technologies in time, but all those are separated out. Man, I deeply resonate with that. <laughs> Especially the, the purpose one, because it, it meant, it made me feel like I was a part of something, like you said. Um, and it, it joined that community and that's what humans are pretty much built for, connection. Uh, so that one yep. spoke to me and it made me realize, but I had to make sure I was doing things for myself <laughs> as well as for for the community I was a part of. I'm, I'm curious to know, Andy, touching back on the fear, what you were mentioning before, um, I feel like a lot of people, including myself at a point, 
was highly unaware and unconscious of those fears. I, I, I understood that rejection, a fear of rejection, something that had driving me um, a lot of my life and been playing in every facet of my life because of something that happened in my childhood. You did mention that before. There might be something that had been STEM. Is there like a method that you teach where you can um, get people to get to the root cause of a specific fear that might have been from a specific trauma from their childhood? I find that a lot of things happen from our childhood. It could have been a point where one of our parents yelled at us because they were having a bad day and it made us separate from that parent. So it may take that masculinity or that femininity away from that person. Therefore it could fall into relationships. I've seen that and I've actually succumbed to that one before. It's great to know that now and the truth hurt when I found out, but is there like a method that you teach people? Cause some people don't want to actually know about this stuff, but they need to so they can get to the root cause of the fear. So is there something that you found is a highly effective way to find that out? Obviously asking questions and going why and why, but from another perspective to guide that person. Are you asking in terms of a fear that's holding them back right now? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. we have obviously teams of people, experts across the sort of clinical and psychology and performance psychology, and, and usually that's where we delegate those sorts of conversations out. But what, what the typical process is to really get people to understand who they are and what they're about, and part of that may be unpacking something in the past. Some of the techniques we use for that, obviously personal interviews, we use... Uh, we do some psychometric evaluations where we actually use sort of, uh, sort of scientifically validated Q&A, you know, the self-reports to sort of start that conversation, sort of pick out who they are now, what do they really think they are about at the present time. And that sometimes forces their own self-reflection. In many cases, if they really, people need to sort of dig a little bit deeper, they sort of typically step away to the, the experts in that space and do that work. Um, so we try and make sure that we're just supporting them in their training. But I think you're right. I think if people find that their just own personal self-awareness as a starting point is not uh, uh, like as developed as it could or could, should be, we found that that's where we always start with individuals. So some of the training we do, the breath holds, the the, the tougher sort of performance stuff, uh, the, the psychometric evaluations, all those sorts of different training evolutions push a, a high degree of self-reflection and then we get people to actually take a lot of notes and, and we make them record and self-report either on the video camera or the phone and that process of just keep going through that, we start to sort of engage and then as, as we say, we bring in experts to sort of support that mechanism. Andy, um, there, there's something that I've been kind of really contemplating lately, and I think that you're the right person to ask. Um, when I was a younger dude, I was, uh, I was in the Olympic program in soccer in the U.S. and California. I was very much into team sports. And as I've become older, I've become much more individualistic in my pursuits. And I find that's kind of mirrored professionally. I find I... Part of, part of, I guess, the challenge with my business is I'm in New South Wales and majority of the business is in Victoria. And so I'm not only in New South Wales, I'm up on the Central Coast, but I very much enjoy being on my own, even though I would identify as an extrovert. 
And I find that I struggle sometimes within team environments now because I struggle with people politics. And what I find is I just prefer to then be kind of on my own, if that makes sense. I wanted to understand from you, and, and to be clear, I find that to be a detriment for me, right? But I, I wanted to understand from you in your, your studies and, and working with athletes, what's the difference between high-performing athletes in a team sport versus in an individual sport? Are there real key differences? Uh, yeah, there, there probably there are. There are. I think, um, well, one thing to remember too, and this is something that people sort of individual sports Individual sports, outside of the actual performance, in, in most cases, are supported by team. Uh, there's either a coach or other. There's always humans yeah. in the equation. So even unless you know the the solo hiker going out and scaling the mountain, even they typically have some sort of network or community, as was mentioned before. So that's that human connection. But I think that idea of how we think about it is sort of whether you're an individual performer or a team performer, you've got to get that sort of general self-awareness, self-acceptance, like that personal growth. That has to get to a certain level because if you don't have that and then you get into a team environment, you've kind of, you've got to be a good individual before you can be a great team player. You know, you can't, you can't come into a team if you're very narcissistic and self-centered and don't really understand compassion or empathy because then you'll just be that person, the team that drives everyone else crazy. And, and, and so we have a model where we make sure everyone's sort of pretty grounded in a high level of self-awareness. And then there's make a good individual and you make a great team player. But the, and I think that's the challenge. It's, it, you know, it, if you come into a team and you find that there's, you know, the, the people politics is overwhelming. In many cases, it's just because the team hasn't had that opportunity to form itself the right way. And, and you probably don't know a lot about each other. One of the fundamental things, one of our teammates uh, on, on our program and our, and our company now, Lim, uh, Coleman Ruiz, he's, he has this really simple user manual that he sets up with every team engagement where he sits down and actually has them exchange a bunch of information about themselves with the other person. And, and, and we, he ties it to some pretty strong psychometric evaluations. But essentially all you're doing is opening up yourself, being... Um, uh, a little uh, more vulnerable and then if everyone in the team starts to do that you start to f see that a lot of the people politics just fall away because you never know that that person's being a pain in your butt about something because maybe their family is struggling with some illness at home or you know something else could be going on in their lives that no one else has a reference point to and that's just how it's manifesting in that team environment so it's a long way of saying I think that yeah, maybe as part of your natural development, you're finding that you're now more effective on the work you're doing individually. But uh, there's also the challenge that maybe the team just hasn't really formed well enough. And if it's a remote team, so you're all distant, that really requires staggering amounts of extra communication. And I fall right into your trap. Some days it's just easier to do it all myself mm -hmm. uh, because I just can't, I don't have the energy for that communication. But ultimately, <laughs> you know, the, the team the team will do more and, and get more done than the individual if it's done the right way. So you just sometimes have to balance your own personal level yeah. of uh, energy for that. That's a good answer. 
Andy, you obviously had a lot of success at Red Bull um, and, and now working, um, at, well, co-founding the Liminal Collective. Uh, you're working with some pretty pretty amazing people such as Jurgen and Hobie. Sorry. Um, I guess what 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 was um, the driving factor for you, for you to sort of branch out on your own? Well, you know, back at Red Bull, we, we had a staggering team of people and what people probably don't recognise is even the core team that was based here in, 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 in Los Angeles, we were really representative of a much broader network. Uh, we were, were lucky to be tied to some of the best people in the world across just about every domain of human factors, whether it was, you know, experts in, in the universities or the research settings or practitioners in all, all the professional sports. We had all the action sports and we had the cultural element, musicians, artists. So there were people out there working with all these individuals, coaches, trainers, psychologists, as I said, technologists, name it. And we found ourselves just managing to navigate that entire community and being a sort of place where they could come and try things that were very new. Because one opportunity that was really profound at Rebel was we could do things that you couldn't do if you're you know, working on a Super Bowl or an NFL grand final or an AFL final, you know. If you're working with teams in those sports settings, you just can't push the boundaries too far because there's a risk, you know, that you might make a mistake and that could have tragic consequences. We still had risk, but we were working with a group of community with so many different athletes that we could sort of spread that risk across the community and try little things here and there. So that whole thing was so, so, so effective that when we were thinking about what could we do to take it beyond what we were doing there was, let's just bring together that community represented by key people who shared the same values of really service and enabling others to really achieve extraordinary things and then bring that collective community. That's why it's called the liminal collective. Liminal meaning sort of on the edge or on the space between spaces, people who are really passionate about sort of looking beyond the horizon. And then the collective is that entire organization. And so we sort of just represent this network of thousands of human performance experts across all these domains. And so through that power of that community, it, it really shows you the, the opportunity that's out there. So we can take on projects that are, you know, considered to be impossible today. And we do a few of those. We do some elite sports stuff. We do some government stuff. Uh, we do some stuff in with esports. We, we're able through that community to leverage that horsepower to sort of direct it at supporting people and helping them achieve their goals. I love that because that applies to not only what that concept of having a strong purpose and community not only applies to the sport element, it obviously applies in business too. That's great. I, we, we usually put out a post, Andy, for every one of our guests to gauge feedback from our community and the next geners to see what they would like to know from our guests. And if, like, if they had one question to ask you, if they had an hour with you, hypothetically, what would be the one question? Because that listening aspect, and we want that community to know that they're heard. Um, one of the questions is from Armando Aguero. He's based in Dublin. Um, he said, I would ask him which athlete impressed him the most and why. I get me in trouble. Um, oh my, that's a, that's a tough one. I think 
You know, it, it sort of depends on the time. Back in the day, the Olympic groups and, 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 and that, some of the Olympics, Olympians we worked with were really, you know, especially in Australia, doing some amazing stuff. I, I think what really impressed me, though, more recently was some of these athletes, in particular, uh, big wave surfer Ian Walsh, he, he really came sort of from that humble beginnings um, and... But he was one of those athletes who was willing to try anything. And he did a project with us called Acheron. He, he dove into all the really futuristic, you know, brain training, the, the, the stuff we're doing with sort of performing under pressure, some of the really exotic training evolutions. He was always willing to try something new. And for what impressed me the most was not, you sort of expect that from an athlete that had sort of maybe done it all, been there, had coaches and trainers before, but he came sort of, had no real support mechanism and dove right into it at the deep end. And I thought that was, and, and what he actually does, and as a human, he's a, he's a wonderful individual. He's one that just recently just sticks out. His capability and, and willingness to learn and try stuff. Uh, he's definitely one of the ones at the top of the list. Andy, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you up with a question that's going to, uh, challenge your uh your knowledge and whether or not you're staying in touch with australian sports since you've left oh, our shores yeah. okay yeah. so we got a question from colin weir who's the ceo of morocco he wants to know what's your perspective on israel falau from israel. a high performance perspective both individually and at a team level and what lessons are there for high performance generally now do you are you familiar with the, the controversy that is embroiled in now? No, I'm not. I know the name, but I don't know what's happening with okay, him right so now. I'll just give you a rundown. So he's a, he's a, he's a, a, a rugby player, a union player from Australia, and he's an elite athlete. And what he's done is he's also a devout Mormon. And they, he, he put out a, a kind of Twitter post or, or something around homosexuality and like alcoholics and drug addicts going to hell. And basically now the, the, the union doesn't want a bar of them. And I think he's struggling to get any support now from even, I think he was thinking about going to rugby league. So I guess just in general, what would your kind of feedback be to um, a situation where an athlete kind of takes a stand or a perspective on a social, uh, you know, a social uh, uh, issue. And I guess, you know, how does that, I, guess, I suppose, relate back to, you know, their team and, and their overall performance and mindset and just headspace? Mm, that's a, it's, a, it's obviously a, a, a tough topic because uh, we've saw, seen it over here more recently with, Colin Kaepernick and the whole uh, kneel yeah, and taking yeah. a knee. Similar thing, I, I guess, in, context, in yeah. context. I think, you know, for people like that, we've always, and this is how we've looked at it, so yeah. by no means right, we've always looked at, look, you've got to respect an individual's right to their opinion. And you've, they've got to be able to hold that opinion and express it openly. Um, when that opinion maybe crosses some line that society is deemed inappropriate because it obviously goes against some norms or acceptance 
there's always that challenge of how do you balance the conversation with them around, look, we respect that you're devoutly connected and, 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 and driven by your spirituality. But you cannot take that as an excuse to pull down others and comment on their own spirituality or, or, or meaning or purpose or whatever they see in themselves. And I think that's the conversation that has to happen with respect to athletes in general doing things that don't make a lot of sense and it can be considered to be, you know, <laughs> you, know you kind of look at them and go, what were you thinking? Um, we've always had the notion and we've seen it even in examples where we've had kids jailed and et cetera, et cetera, for all the, all the wrong reasons. You've got to, that's the time they need you the most. When they make when they make a mistake or they've done something that maybe isn't being you know sort of accepted or even interpreted the right way, if that's when you know people need to get behind them and really use that as an opportunity to coach and teach them. Yeah. It's easy to walk away and look at again. We talked about Tiger earlier. You know, Zach's a golfer. You know, Nike could have dropped him hot after that. You know, all the challenges and things he had, and a lot of his sponsors did, but they. They stood behind him. And, you know, you could argue, again, rights are wrong, but I'm always respectful of those those communities that can see the longer play and the, and the bigger picture and say, look, if someone's struggling and maybe their version of the world is not aligned with yours and maybe they've said things that have offended people, but is there an opportunity then to help them grow through that? Or is there something where you just have to draw the line? And every, every, every situation is different, but we always default to you know, let's give them a second chance and, and then hopefully see if we can help them grow and learn. But again, I don't know the specifics of that situation. So I, I'm sure it must be devastating for him as an athlete to, to be sitting on the sidelines like that. Yeah, I would imagine so. And, and it, it's such a good point. I think that we're very quick to persecute um, our athletes because we have this view on the world that they should just know shit <laughs> and they should be all knowing and not immature and, I mean, um, that's just not the case, I suppose, right? No, you're right. You're spot on. And in now day and age where everybody is so instantly connected, you can't say something stupid and then retract it. It's out there. And I'm not saying that he did or didn't. I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the situation. But if I think we're very quick to judge athletes because we expect there's this sort of observation we've had over the years when they're so good at what they do in one particular part of their life people naturally assume that they should be good at everything else and in many cases it's the opposite in many cases they've been so focused on success and, and the training and and, and, the, and, the, and the performance in that particular vertical that they just haven't had the training or the experience in these other spaces and so they actually lack and then you know to use examples over here Young kids graduating from high school getting multi $20, 30000000 million contracts who have just played that sport for the last, you know, from the age of six to the age of 18. That's a real recipe for disaster mm. because mm. they have no framework, first and foremost, on in many cases, unless they have a good support system, of even what to do with that kind of wealth, let alone giving it to people like ourselves. Like you drop a $20 million on anybody and it's going to be a challenge, but someone who has no real life experience, especially life skills in terms of financial planning and all the other piece, it's a real mistake. And that's, but that's part of this. That's the, that's the sort of machine of sport. It does this all the time. And I think people have unrealistic expectations 
of elite athletes, just like they have unrealistic expectations of, you know, people in other other leadership roles. And, and unless they're actually given training and support and coaching to be better leaders within their world, in their sport and outside of their sport or better mentors, you, you're kind of getting a getting what you've sort of asked for. Mm. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal perspective on, on things and to see it from, from that point of view is, um, is awesome, Andy. I've got a question from, um, from Toby Newman who works um, in, the, in the development space for his, for his company. Um, and the question he asked was, uh, was there a specific strategy to have Red Bull expand from sports performance to almost a fashionable drink or was it a natural customer-led progression? Uh, I don't know exactly the, the sort of context of the question, but the, the, the way the brand started way back in the day was to support talent. It was the, the owner in the early days, it was, a, and it still is Dietrich Manishes, as startup in, as, in that company was really interested in engaging and connecting with opinion leaders, especially in sports. But remember the culture side as well, the artists and musicians. And back in the day versus sponsoring per se would buy tickets to events or buy them, get them hotel rooms, you know. And I think there was a lot of, even in that day and age, there was a supporting your dreams or giving you, you know, supporting, giving you wings, as he would say, to the, to the dreams of these performers. And so the drink itself, the energy drink as a beverage, defined the category and owned the category and grew, grew, grew and grew. I think the natural progression of performance was, well, let's rather than just even getting them to the event, how do we give them more support? How do we give them more marketing support? How do we give them more uh, communication support? How do we give them more actual performance support? How do we, you know, again, the, the brand message, how do, how do we put systems in place that really enables them to be the best at what they can do versus just writing a check to pay them as a sponsored performer? And they kind of carved that out. So I think it was kind of a parallel development, not one or the other. But the, the original intent was very much in the, based in that essence of supporting people to achieve. Andy, as we start to wrap things up, I just want to acknowledge you for what you do and for being in the space that you've been in for quite some time now. It's like Please. I said at the start of the, um, in his introduction, you're very humble and you've got a lot of humility in what you speak. You like to lead from the, the back, which is great. Bring those people up with it. And just the amount of insight that I've gotten from this conversation, which obviously applies to high performance and sport, but also in business that has caught my attention. Um, I appreciate you for what you do. And on behalf of the next gen team, um, what we like to do with our guests is give them 30 seconds to plug whatever they have coming up. It could be anything from a, a, a page you have. It could be um, where people can find you. It could be a specific project. It could be your company. Is there anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share with our, our community? Uh, well, first, thank you guys. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of reach out to us and, and we always learn from each other. So, you know, <laughs> Likewise, back to you guys. So sort of, thanks for pulling this sort of information together and sharing it more broadly. One of the bigger missions for us as part of the, 
It's a liminal collective and the only place you can is a landing page is all that exists right now, but that'll start to grow in the next few weeks. So you can check that out, but mm -hmm. think about it in three buckets. And that's sort of the message maybe to leave with sort of humans 2.0. What is it to make you as an individual better? Humans 2.0, which is the team and the organizational stuff that we, we do. But then you get into humanity 2.0 and a big part of that is democratizing what we've all learned. And we have this, again, this staggering community of experts. Who, you know, again, we're probably on the lower end of the spectrum of achievement with respect to the community. And, and you start to see that the aggregate knowledge of the community and what they could offer is profound. So our biggest message is probably more an ask out or watch this space or how can you help is, how do we start to democratize this information? And one way is to do these sort of conversations or meetings. Another way is that we're looking at some pretty profound digital and, and technology stacks that would hopefully take everything that's in all these brains of all these amazing people, yourselves included, and just give it all away. So that's kind of the bigger vision of what we're trying to do. So we're, we're you know, there's no timeline on that yet, but it's a work in progress. And that's the, that's the most fun stuff we have going right now. Thanks for that, Andy. And, and um, with all our guests, Andy, we ask the, the final question, and we're going to ask you the final question. If there was one piece of game-changing advice that you can impart to the next gen, the next gen movement, and keeping in mind a lot of our viewers are millennials, what would that piece of advice be, Andy? That's a thought provoke or anything. The one thing I would say, be, be very open. Be, be, uh, be open to learn, be a lifelong learner. No matter how good you think you are at what you're doing and how much you think you've achieved, there's always more to learn. And so keep that beginner's mind. I think that's one of the biggest, um, or greatest assets we see in our, in our community. If, if you can come into any situation with a beginner's mind, you'll be flexible, you'll be agile, you'll be able to adapt, you'll also be able to persevere. And I think that's one of the tools that's really uh, helpful. I wish I'd known that 30 years ago. <laughs> well, you've done okay, Andy. So you've done okay, though. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Well, look, uh, really, really appreciate your time, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I will shoot you an email later on just around the details of uh, when we uh, get the videos ready to, to post and all that good stuff, and I'll get you all that information to you uh, so that way you can have a look at the videos and whatnot. But look, again, I just honestly like to uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I'm sure the team feels the same way too. So. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Likewise, guys. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Andy. Much.